Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, because you, God, are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So how do you pronounce Habakkuk? Do you say Habakkuk? Do you say Habakkuk? That's about as far as most of us have ever gotten into this particular book of the Bible. How do you say it? Let's move on to Luke. But they're both in our lectionary for this Sunday and this, this month for the four Sundays of November. We're using lectionary scriptures under the theme of trying to get to the, the truth beneath uh, Thessalonians 5, 18, which says, in everything give thanks. You know, at the end of this month, there's this long-practiced holiday that many of us observe. It's called Thanksgiving. And I'd like to think that this series will help us with, the, with Thanksgiving in a couple of ways. One, hopefully it'll help us think about giving thanks enough that the holiday we celebrate isn't quite so overshadowed by the Good Friday deals we live through Thursday to get to. So we want November to be about giving thanks, not about getting deals on Black Friday. The second thing is I hope that in, every give th every, in Everything Give Thanks as a series gives us some kind of perspective besides how did we get to where Thanksgiving is somehow equated to stuffing as much as possible into your pie hole all on one day? What does eating yourself into oblivion have to do with giving thanks? And believe it or not, Habakkuk helps us with that. However, Habakkuk will not give us the answer. Here's a summary of the three chapters of the prophet Habakkuk. Um, chapter one says, um, God, why doesn't everything in the world work the way it's supposed to work? Have you ever wondered that? Why doesn't the world work the way it's supposed to work? Habakkuk chapter two, God answers the question with, the righteous will live honestly. You may remember a different version of this because Habakkuk started it. Paul quotes it a couple of times in the New Testament. The just will live by faith. Just as good a translation is the righteous will live honestly. And chapter three, to round it all up, to, to really help us understand is the prophet's prayer. So Habakkuk is written to deal with the same kinds of questions we have because so the New Testament says in everything give thanks. Some of us have warped or it's been warped for us into for everything give thanks. And we've got a view of the world almost as though God is the puppet master making everything happen. And so if it happens, you got to give thanks to God for it. So Habakkuk deals with the same question and doesn't give us a really satisfying answer. So maybe the lectionary gospel reading for today, the story of Zacchaeus. You remember the story of Zacchaeus, don't you? Zacchaeus was a? A? Man, everybody knows that. He was short. At least the way we've all been taught to read the story, he was short. If you look, though, um, and you may or may not. It's in Luke 19, as Tammy read for us already. It's really interesting. There's a whole school of thought 
And yes, just like any other experts or authorities, Bible scholars sometimes have too much time on their hands. So I don't know if, if, if you notice this in verse 3. Okay, verse 2. There was a man named Zacchaeus, a ruler among tax collectors. He was rich. Okay, so Zacchaeus is the last person named. So in the next sentence when it says he was trying to see who Jesus was, obviously the he refers to the previously named person, which was Zacchaeus. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he couldn't. But being a short man, he couldn't because of the crowd. So who was the short man. I know the song says it was Zacchaeus, right? Because that's the way we've always read this story. It's not absolutely clear that the story's not saying that Jesus was a short man. Now, I hope that doesn't burst all of your theological bubbles because let's be fair, no place else in any of the Gospels is Jesus referred to as a short man. And it's likely that if he was the short one, it would be said elsewhere. But I just want you to know this because we read the story of Zacchaeus in a certain way because that's the way we've been taught to read the story, like every other story that we read. And it's not so important whether or not Zacchaeus was the short man or Jesus was the short man. But I want to show you why it might make a difference for us. See, we've also learned to read this story as though Zacchaeus is a tax collector, and sometimes you might even, if you weren't in a, in a really stodgy worship service, you might want to boo at the mention of the tax collector because tax collectors are bad people, right? That they're, they're a straw man in the Bible signifying bad people. And so Zacchaeus is not only a bad person because he's a tax collector, but he's also wealthy. So he's a really effective, successful tax collector, which probably makes him even worse. It's the way we've learn to read the story, except I'm not sure that's fair to the story. Because in the previous chapter, there's a tax collector mentioned. Jesus tells the story of, of a Pharisee and a tax collector going down to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee, who is a righteous person and mentions to God the righteous things that he's done, but also says, thank you, God, that I'm not like uh, other people, like, uh, like the tax collector over there. See, the Pharisee knows the story, and tax collectors are the bad guys. But then he says, Jesus says, and the tax collector who's over there stayed off at a distance and bowed his head and beat his chest and prayed, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I didn't do a very good job keeping my head down, did I? Um, I? Maybe I wouldn't make a good tax collector. I don't know if that's good. So in that story, just a chapter before this, the tax collector is the one Jesus lifts up as the example in fact, throughout Luke, we find the tax collector is this, this ambiguous character. So we're, we're all supposed to think of the tax collector as these people in the Zacchaeus story did. They grumbled because Jesus saw him in the tree, told him to come down and said, I must stay in your home today. And everyone who saw this grumbled, saying, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. You know, tax collectors are sinners, and he's a rich sinner. But here's where it gets tricky. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone, I repay them four times as much. Notice, now, maybe you didn't read the story this way. I tend to imagine this story 
as Zacchaeus being so confronted by the righteousness of Jesus that he repents of having been the evil tax collector that he used to be, and now he promises to change his ways. But this scripture is not in the future tense. He doesn't say, thanks to meeting you, Jesus, I will give half my possession to the poor, and now I'll repay people I've cheated. He just says, it's like he could, depends on how you tell the story, he could be just explaining to Jesus, um, these instructions, I keep them to the best of my ability. I give half my possessions to the poor. Did you know, typically, I don't know if this was true in Jesus' day, typically these days, the rich give less as a percentage of income than the poor. But if you're wealthy, it's easy to look impressive with a large gift that may be a lower percentage of your income. Zacchaeus is rich, and he gives half his possessions to the poor. And he says, if I have cheated anyone, I pay them back four times. Exactly what the Torah, what the instruction requires him to do. And in response, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this household because he too is the son of Abraham. So he's saying this to Zacchaeus, but he's also saying for the benefit of everyone who was grumbling because this guy's a sinner. So how does Zacchaeus' story help us figure out how we go forward in a world where everything doesn't work right? Where are we supposed to give thanks for everything? Is God actually controlling, manipulating everything? Does God have, like, bad things scheduled, do you think? Like, sometimes we, we imagine that God must have because we think the world couldn't go on and make any sense to us if God didn't have all these things scheduled. And I think Habakkuk is written to exactly that kind of question. So I heard the story this last week that a woman has cancer and her cancer was caused by the treatments that she had for cancer 10 years ago. Do you imagine that, that somewhere God had written um, in 2009, okay, treat so-and-so for cancer. God blanks out the names, you know, for confidentiality. Um, but whatever treatment, she'll get cancer again in 10 years. See, I don't imagine that God works that way. I've got a, a really good friend from college named Dwayne. He lives in the Pacific Northwest. He works for a, a cruise line, a small cruise line. And uh, about 15 months ago, Dwayne, uh, uh, they had discovered a brain tumor in his um, in his head, and so they surgically removed this, and it seemed to be successful surgery, and he went through chemo and radiation, and, uh, and, and, and his friends gathered around him all we could, and, and some went and spent time with him. We, we started Kickstarters and GoFundMes, and, uh, and, and treatment went so well that pretty soon um, he was sharing video of him out playing catch with his two young daughters. Everything, everybody was feeling great about this, and just in the last month or so, Cancer has recurred, and Dwayne has another tumor in his brain, and he's terminal this time. And I cannot imagine that even when we were in school together, God had written someplace, okay, 2018, Dwayne, brain tumor. And yet sometimes the way we're trained to expect, the, the way we're brought up to expect that God works in the world, if the world is to make any sense at all, we, we almost are left with the world having to be like that. 
here's what I think Habakkuk helps us with about that. And I think even Jeremiah and, and or Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus's response is that I, I don't I don't think we're going to understand. And it's really hard because for at least 300 years, we have been living in a culture that has been in, in increasing ways convinced that everything that's worth knowing can be completely understood and even listed with a list of facts or significant bullet points. So we have, to the best of our ability for the last three centuries, moved away from stories, you know, because cultures used to live on stories. And if you were asked, how did so-and-so happen? Well, let me tell you this story. Everything Jesus taught, Jesus taught with a story. Now, and watch for this, you'll have people that argue, we don't need stories anymore, man. We have facts. We have information now. And the way they'll explain to you why we don't need stories, because now we have facts and reliable information, is they'll tell you a story about why we don't need stories anymore. But the stories still live in us. We can't live without stories. And the stories leave us probably asking the same kinds of things, if we're honest with ourselves, that the people in Habakkuk's day said. You heard these words when Tammy read them. Lord, how long will I call for help and you not listen? I cry out to you violence, but you don't deliver us. Why do you show me injustice and look at anguish so that devastation and violence are before me? There's strife and conflict abounds. And then, ooh, really poking at God, the instruction and the I in instruction is capitalized in chapter 1, verse 4, where the instruction, you remember if you were here last week, we talked about the book of instruction, the scroll of instruction that King Josiah had instructed the temple to be cleaned out, and they found the scroll of instruction. Here in Habakkuk, that scroll of instruction, the Torah, the, the law by which God's people live, the instruction is ineffective. Justice doesn't endure because the wicked surround the righteous. Justice becomes warped. People have been asking these questions at least since Habakkuk, which was quite a while after Job. And if you remember anything about the book of Job, the book of Job is entirely about this same question. Why, God? Why, why do things happen? And why can't I understand? And in Job, you remember God's answer to Job was a data dump. Okay, Job, here's 340 questions. When you answer these, come back and we'll talk about reasons. In Habakkuk, it's a much briefer answer in chapter 2. In fact, the chapters 1 and 2 go back and forth. Hey, God, what's wrong with this? God responds, hey, God, what's wrong with this? God responds, God's response, I'm going to summarize. In 2, 1 through 4, um, you might remember this. God told the prophet to write a vision and write it so simply, so clearly that a runner could read it. Now, he's not saying runners aren't very smart. He's saying that a runner could read it while running. Or make it simple enough that a runner could carry it to be read elsewhere. And here's the simple statement that God wants us to know in response. Righteous people will live honestly. There's God's answer. God, why do horrible things happen? Why don't you do anything, God? The righteous person will live honestly. See, we want answers. I don't think we get answers. We want a list of things that can make things make sense to us. And what the scripture offers to us is not, things, not, not a list of things that you and I can memorize and then that's our answer. Or, you know, get some book in heaven open up to, realize, to, to reveal that God had all these horrible things planned out and scheduled for us. I can't imagine that. 
We want to understand, we just can't understand. In the last month, I've had um, the, the honor to be with two different men as they breathe their last breaths. And just before breathing their last breath, um, one of them said, I want to go home. And all of us there, the family and all the loved ones that were gathered there, knew that he must mean, he's a deep man of faith, that he must mean he's done fighting with this illness. So he's ready to go home to God. He, he, he said home, and so we tried to say, do you mean home, Euless, or do you mean home, heaven? And he was not conscious enough to answer that question. But we all felt like we knew that in a way. Honestly, you can't actually know. But you know. The other man was in skilled nursing. He went there for rehab and ended up, he, he was there for hospice. And, and one of the last things he said was, I, 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 I just want to go. And similarly, surrounded by family and, and friends and loved ones, you don't know abs- in any absolute sense where he wants to go. But again, a man of deep faith, you know where he wanted to go. Because he is a man who lived by faith. Not faith in having all the answers to get everything figured out, but faith that, that God is there even when nothing in the world seems to be going right. The real problem with thinking that the world always works in an orderly way unless God has something else designed or God, everything that, that's bad that happens is God trying to turn us around or give us a lesson is it makes it out as though if something's going wrong in your life, it's about something you've done, and things going wrong in your life is part of life. And we want to know why, and the answer God has for us is live by faith. It's okay to want to know why, in the prophet Habakkuk, they wanted to know why. They asked God why. They said, God, your instructions don't work. And God didn't say, fine, I'll find other people. God says, live honestly, live by faith. Just keep living. So as, as I close, two examples of living by faith on the way, because the, the message that I really hope you get is that, that I think in learning to give thanks and everything, we're to give up on thinking or expecting to have all the answers and learn to just trust in God to trust God instead of thinking we can know. So two stories. Um, Eight years ago this month, we were preparing to have a child have hip surgery, which meant that she would have been in a spica cast, a body cast from here to here for three months. Now, as it turned out, that one didn't work, so we had another three months. And as you've seen Eliza scurrying about here, surgery was eventually successful. But even before it was eventually successful, we take her home from Texas Scottish Rite Hospital for Children, and um, she took a few days to adjust to a body cast. I cannot imagine the pity party I would have thrown if I was in a body cast for three months. But this 18-month-old did not throw that much of a pity party, and so pretty soon she was cleared to, to go back to her daycare, and we went to pick her up at her daycare, and they said, oh, you got to come in and see this. And she's out on the playground with all the other toddlers, and we got to watch her crawl, because she had use of her arms and was just dragging her legs behind, crawl up the playground structure and slide face first down into the mulch. This was not a child who liked sliding face first into mulch, 
None of the other kids were allowed to slide face first into mulch, but all the kids who weren't in Spica Cats were pretty able to turn around on their bottoms. But the smile on her face while her body is locked up in a cast for three months is an image of living by faith. It's the life I have today. This is the life I will live today. And finally, I, I heard a story uh, that recently there was this group that brought um, recipients of the Congressional Medal of Honor to various schools in the HEB ISD to meet young people and to share their stories of heroism and experience. Um, the intent was to inspire and encourage these students to live their lives with integrity in the direction of building character. But the reason I want to tell you this story about living not to have all the answers but with faith in God was because the story that I heard was that all these Congressional Medal of Honor recipients walked away from those opportunities giving thanks for the blessing that the children were to them. The plan was for them to be a blessing to the children. And there's no doubt they were. But the fact that they were blessed by the opportunity to share with the children, I think indicates that they weren't living to have all the answers. They were looking to have faith in God. So as we wrestle for this month with how to give thanks in everything, I encourage you to practice not thinking you have to thank God for everything, but in the midst of whatever life might throw at you, give thanks that God is with you. God, we are grateful for your faithfulness, for your presence. We do not always feel thankful because sometimes the circumstances of our lives are not things for which we ought to be thankful. In the midst of those circumstances, God, help us know that we don't face any of those things alone, but you are faithful and you are with us. For this, we give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.